But um, I've been, I was just telling John and Alexandria that I'm having to like look at my duties and cut back on different things. But I'm really hoping that it won't affect my ability to be here with you occasionally, right? I, I really do enjoy it. So pray for me, okay? Because uh, I'll need it during this kind of transition period for me. So uh, let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, you give to us St. Joseph to help us to understand the gift of true fatherhood, the gift of being a faithful son of yours, and of being close to Jesus and Mary. We ask that especially during these days leading up to the Feast of St. Joseph, we might truly appreciate the gift that he is to the Church as well as to our own personal lives and our own growth in holiness. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So uh, I'm an Oblate of St. Joseph, a community that was founded in the 19th century by St. Joseph Morello, right? He, he's a bishop, um, but the Oblates of St. Joseph are not named after St. Joseph Morello, right? We're named after St. Joseph of Nazareth, the earthly father of Jesus. But, you know, when I started looking at my religious vocation, um, I wasn't first inclined to be an Oblate of St. Joseph. I didn't even know who they were. I mean, probably most of you don't know who the Oblates are, right? And that's okay, because that's kind of part of our spirituality, is to re remain hidden and a little bit unknown. Um, I had a, a number of Oblate priests who were the, the parish priests where, where I grew up and lived. Uh, and so, without me even knowing it, they were instilling these values of, of the Oblate spirituality in my life. But when it came to the point of starting to, when I realized that I might have a religious vocation, I, when I started looking at different, different religious orders, the Oblates were not the ones I was considering. As a matter of fact, I was looking at them and going, well, I really don't want to be like those guys, right? I want to be, have a little more uh, kind of exciting life, right? I want to be out there in the forefront maybe of media or maybe traveling or maybe you know, on the circuit, doing talks, something, right? I was thinking something much more, much greater than Loomis, California, right? Does anything good, can anything good come out of Loomis, I think scripture says, right? Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, and something happened along the way, right, that I just, uh, I realized God put these people in my life for a certain reason, and so then I, I realized I need to at least give this, give this a shot. And I'm sharing this with you because at some point along the way, I realized that I had absolutely no devotion, personal devotion, to St. Joseph. I mean, I, it was weird to me to think, well, God's calling me to be an oblate of St. Joseph. But in my personal life, I couldn't remember a single time where I sought out St. Joseph's intercession, where I felt like I had a special connection to him, where I felt like, yeah, here's a, here's a saint that actually has some some special meaning to me. And so that really started throwing me for a loop. Like, what if God's calling me to be an oblate of St. Joseph and I don't have a devotion to St. Joseph, I mean, does that even make sense? Is that even possible? Uh, well, I can share with you that um, although I think when I, when I started looking at the oblates, I didn't really have a deep appreciation of St. Joseph, um, I can tell you that that devotion grew and developed and really has been blossoming for me even more. So I, I'm sharing that with you because I think that um, when we look at the person of St. Joseph, if you're here thinking, well, I don't, you know, St. Joseph, yeah, he's all right, you know, he, he's all right, but really I have a lot of other saints that I like 
better or that I have a better relationship to or that are more significant and more important to me, then I'm glad that you're here, right? Because this talk is for you. It's not only for people who love St. Joseph. This is for us who maybe don't understand totally the person of St. Joseph or don't appreciate very much the person of St. Joseph in our lives. So this is my, my hope during, during the short time we have tonight. First of all, I think there are a lot of misconceptions, misunderstandings about St. Joseph because St. Joseph's life is rooted in certainly scripture, but our understanding of him has been affected by a lot of uh, non-scriptural sources, by artwork, by legend, by these kinds of things. So we're going to tease out what does the church say, what does scripture say about Joseph versus what is, you know, just legend, not even canonical, right, by, by the church. So I want to clear up a lot of those things and help us have a better theology of St. Joseph. And then I want to talk about, I was uh, saying that I, I was kind of tempted to call this talk True Devotion to St. Joseph, right? Like True Devotion to Mary, True Devotion to Joseph. But I, I think that was maybe a little too strong, right? Because I, I love Mary and um, there's maybe a difference between Mary and Joseph. So I didn't want to make the comparison too strong. Then. But I am going to, at, at a certain point, talk switch from misconceptions to talk about authentic devotion to St. Joseph. And what does it mean to be authentically devoted to St. Joseph? Uh, and then we can, um, we, we can finish maybe by talking about ways we can increase our, our appreciation of Joseph in our life, um, our, our own trust and our own devotion to him in our prayer life and in our, our own spiritual life. And then, of course, we'll have some, some time for questions and, and answers and things like that. Okay, um, what do you think, what, who can tell me what the most popular devotion to St. Joseph is in the world? Not, not in the church, in the world. This is an easy one. Exactly, selling your house. You buy a, st a statue of St. Joseph, dig a hole in your front lawn or in your back lawn, right? Put the statue of St. Joseph in upside down, right? Upside down it has to be, right? Then you bury it, and then within X number of days, you know, the place is sold. As a matter of fact, they sell kits, right? House selling kits with little statues of St. Joseph and probably holy water from Lourdes you're buying when you do that. Something, you know, I don't know. There's probably simony going on there somehow, you know? Um, to me, that's really, it's really sad. I think St. Joseph would be horrified by this because, because it's really, it's really, um, I, I can understand people have a devotion to St. Joseph. They want to sell their house and they do that. But I can tell you the vast majority of people doing that, right? They don't actually have a devotion to St. Joseph, right? It's practically witchcraft for them. It's practically, well, I'm going to buy some object, bury it in the ground, upside down, right? Recite a couple prayers that came on the prayer card that, from the box from Amazon.com, right? And then, and then my house is going to sell. I mean, if that doesn't give Catholicism a bad name, right? I don't know what does. So, so I think that's probably one of, at least here in the U.S., that's probably one of the most common ways that St. Joseph has known, that if you need your household, you go to him. Uh, that's really unfortunate to me, but that's where we're at. And we're, we're here to try and break through that misconception. To be honest, I should have studied that a little bit more. I don't actually know the origins of that, of that particular um, devotion, devotion, right, um, in quotation marks. I'm not saying it's bad, right? I'm not saying there's a revered tradition in the church. Saints have done this. They, they'll take a medal of a particular saint they have a devotion to, bury it in the ground somewhere, 
and uh, asking for an intercession, and um, amazing things happen, right? If, how many of you have been to um, Montreal, to the Shrine of St. Joseph in Montreal? I mean, if you haven't been there, it is one of the most amazing shrines. I've, I've been to, uh, to a lot of places, right, including, you know, Rome and all that. The, the oratory to St. Joseph is amazing, especially because of its origins. I mean, it started out with one simple brother, right, Brother Andre. He buried a little medal of St. Joseph on this little hill, and he started his own little uh, apostolate of spreading devotion to St. Joseph. And now there's literally like three tiers of cathedrals on top of each other, right? I mean, people will go up on their knees up these massive flights of stairs asking for intercessions from St. Joseph. There's a room with uh, bigger than this, right, a little chapel. Though All of the walls are covered with... Um, crutches from people who have gone to the shrine and left without needing their, their walking door. I mean, it's just a really beautiful, amazing what, what devotion to St. Joseph can look like when it flourishes and flowers. It starts so humbly, and then because of small little uh, donations, small little efforts by lots of people, it comes together to be this amazing um, reminder of the person of St. Joseph. So I'm hoping to go from you know, the little house selling kits to a greater appreciation, devotion, like we see in Montreal. Okay, let's start with scripture, okay? Because that's where, that's where the root of how we understand St. Joseph is. So, um, gosh, I don't, where do you start here? Let me just read you um, Matthew from, from the first chapter of Matthew, okay? Now this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. When his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found with child through the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, since he was a righteous man, yet unwilling to expose her to shame, decided to divorce her quietly. Why did Joseph divorce Mary? Or I shouldn't say he didn't divorce Mary. Why did Joseph feel like he should divorce Mary? Yes. He knew who she was. And, and David, you know, the whole thing of the New Ark of the Covenant, it was kind of like... The new, do you think he knew she was the New Ark of the Covenant? Maybe. I'm, 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 not, I'm not being facetious. I'm just, no, I'm I, just creating I it. I he was kind of like, who am I to have her in my heart? Okay. Instead of just, you know, that she was, you know... You do better, John. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, John. Uh, he did not suspect her of adultery. He did not. He did not uh, suspect her of adultery. He didn't know how he fit into God's plan. Okay, let's talk about. Let's talk about this, right? This is what we call the suspicion theory versus the theory of reverent awe. Okay, suspicion theory versus the theory of reverent awe. Did Joseph want to divorce Mary because he was suspicious of her? Well, how do we know that? I mean, the, the thing is, is Scripture doesn't say one way or the other, right? At least directly. One, let, let, me, let me go. I'm going to answer your question, right? <laughs> scripture doesn't say one way or the other, okay? First of all, I would say it's rooted in our own experience. Our own experience is one of suspicion. We come from broken families. We come from people who are unfaithful, right? And so we suspect that all people are suspicious. I mean, to me, this is kind of the root of the problem that we approach 
scripture with suspicion, right? Because we're coming from a totally different place than St. Joseph or our Blessed Mother. So first of all, that's, that's a big problem with it in the first place. Second of all, is this problem that you don't even know about, probably, um, but it's a document that was written, right, in the early centuries of the church called the Proto-Evangelium of James. It's, um, it's apocryphal, right? Apocryphal meaning it's not canonical. It's not one way or the other. The church hasn't said this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but I can tell you it's not, okay? It's not by my judgment because in writings like the apocryphal writings, right, Jesus will get upset at one of his friends when he's a little child, so he'll strike him dead, right? And then his mother will come in and go, Jesus, I can't believe you did that. I mean, not using the Lord's name in vain, right? He's saying, Jesus, you, I can't believe you did that, right? <laughs> Just clarifying there, because this is being recorded, right? <laughs> I can't believe you did that, son. And then Jesus brings the child back to life, right? I mean, is that Jesus? No, of course not, right? Well, also in this particular this particular um, explanation, or kind of, not explanation, but extrapolation from scripture, Joseph is described, firstly, as a very old man. A very old man that has already had children that is far beyond the ability to have more children. He's also described in there as being suspicious of Mary. Now, both of these points are really important. Why would he be an old man? What would be the point of having Joseph be an old man? I mean, I can understand it from a, trying to explain scripture, maybe where it says, right, your, uh, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting for you, right? And people are trying to understand, what does it mean that jo Jesus has brothers and, that are waiting outside, right? And his mom immaculately conceived him as a virgin, right? So they're maybe trying to explain some of that. How does Joseph have, I'm sorry, how does Jesus have brothers without, if his mom, right, only had him? Okay, that's one kind of explanation. The other thing is, right, if he's old, he can't have children. So she remains a virgin because he can't have relations with her, right? This is the reason, one of the reasons why the Proto-Evangelium of James is saying this. It's partly to try and protect, right, the, the dignity of our Blessed Mother. But it's doing it in a false way. Why? Because Scripture never says that Joseph was an old man. Never says that Joseph was suspicious of Mary. As a matter of fact, you start looking through scripture, and that's what I want to talk about for a little bit tonight. You start looking and you start to see very quickly that Joseph was not suspicious of Mary's uh, fidelity, or infidelity for that matter. Okay, let's, let's go through this passage really quickly, just a few points here. Before they lived together, she was found with child through the Holy Spirit. If you look at the Greek, right? Those, that phrase, with child through the Holy Spirit, you can't separate those two phrases. So she was found with child through the Holy Spirit. That is to say, it comes as a package deal, right? You find out she's with child by the Holy Spirit. You don't find out she's with child and then later on, oh, by the way, that's from the Holy Spirit. That's not what the, the text says, right? The text is very clear, maybe not in English, but in Greek it's very clear that she was found with child through the Holy Spirit, right? Does, does that make sense? I mean, it's kind of hard to, without like a whiteboard, you know, to graph this out grammatically. Okay, so first of all, it's not like Joseph found out she was with child apart from finding out the origin of this pregnancy. So in fact, 
Quite the opposite. The scriptures imply that Joseph found out not only that she was pregnant, but at the same time that the origins of this pregnancy. Okay, Matthew continues, right? Matthew says, uh, St. Matthew says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, into your home, for it is through the Holy Spirit that the child has been conceived in her. Let me ask you something. If you were cheated on, right, by your fiancé, what would your reaction be? Anger? What else? Sadness? Okay. Can I ask you something? Would you be afraid? Right, does that even occur to, to you to be afraid, right? Your, your, your fiancé has cheated on you, and all of a sudden you're afraid. I mean, it doesn't make sense logically that if somebody is suspicious of their spouse cheating on them, that all of a sudden they're afraid. So the reaction of somebody who knows, who learns that their spouse is maybe not faithful to them, right, is one of injustice, one of anger, right? one of sadness, all of the things that we've, we've talked about, it's not really one of fear. And that's, it doesn't make sense when you think about the logical progression of human nature, right? So it doesn't make sense to say Joseph was suspicious of Mary and therefore he was afraid. That's just illogical, right? Okay, from my point of view anyway, from, from my point of view. Uh, finally, what does it mean to say that Joseph is just? Joseph was a righteous man, scripture says, right? He was a just man. What does that mean? Yes. He obeyed the Jewish law. This is, this is the most common understanding of what the word just means, right? That he obeyed the law. He obeyed the law. Let, let, me, let me tell you, when somebody commits adultery, right? Against, go ahead, yeah. When somebody commits adultery, they, part of the law is that they are exposed publicly. Why? To shame them, right? To shame them. Okay, if Joseph was the just man because he obeyed the law, logically, wouldn't he want that law to be put into effect? If he's just, if he actually wants the law to be completed, then he's going to want... Of course, he might feel, you know, that maybe this is unfair, but if he's liking the law, right, if he's just because it means obeying the law, then he's going to want the law to be taken into practice. But he doesn't in this case. He doesn't. In fact, this word in Greek, the, the word for justice, for just or righteous, is not used so much to talk about obeying the law. Uh, I want to read to you a quote from... Um, from a, a very famous uh, Josephologist. He also happens to be an oblate of St. Joseph, but he's one, of the, he's one of the foremost theologians on St. Joseph in the world. Uh, actually, he lives here in California. His name is Matthew Spence. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, it just occurred to me. Like, wow. No, his name is Father Larry. Let me, let me read this to you. It's a, it's a little long... But to me, it explains it very... Actually, before I read this to you, let me just tell you, the word just is applied to a lot of other people in Scripture, both in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Noah is just. Abraham is just. Lot is just, right? Notice, all of these are people before the law was given to Moses, right? So in that case, justice just is not talking about 
obeying the Jewish law necessarily, right? And then of course Moses is considered just. There's a lot of people who are described as just. Who are described as just. Let me read this this to you from Father Larry. Though Joseph is preeminently a man of faith, and that's what just means in this case. That he is a man who has faith in God. Like the people that we just described, he awaits the fulfillment of the prophets of the promise. Like them, he believes God and places himself at his disposition at one of the final humble instruments for the promised fulfillment of salvation. He believes that the pregnancy is by the Holy Spirit, and his reaction before the mystery is one of reverent awe. His response is like that of Moses removing his sandals before the burning bush, of Isaiah terrified by the appearance of the thrice holy God, of Elizabeth before the mother of the Lord, of the centurion whom Jesus offers to visit, and of Peter, who seeing his nets filled, exclaims, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinner. To me, that's just a, that's an awesome description of what we're talking about when we say Joseph was just. It means that he is uh, righteous before God. It doesn't mean he's just in the execution of the law, necessarily. Of course, it's not that you divide these things totally, right? We don't create this false dichotomy between the law and between being righteous before God. But in some instances, right, the Jewish law was incorrect when it came to, for example, Mary, right? Um, Joseph didn't want Mary to be exposed humbly, or exposed to shame, right? So he was willing to go against the law in that case, right? To go against Jewish law, to not expose her publicly, and divided, decided to, to try and divorce her quietly. Okay, let me take a breath, because I'm, like, I love this scripture stuff, but I'm, I don't want to, like, overwhelm people, like, whoa, whoa, you know, this is too much. Do, do you understand where I'm coming from here? Joseph, Joseph um, did, was not suspicious of Mary. If we are thinking that we're reading into scripture, it's called eisegesis, right? We're projecting our own understanding of relationships onto scripture. We're saying, yeah, that's, that's how he must have felt because that's how I felt when somebody cheated on me, right? Um, it says more about me than it does about the scripture text itself, right? So instead of doing that, we try and understand the nuances of scripture and the background, the, the backdrop of scripture. And say, when, when St. Matthew says that Joseph is a just man, he's not talking about only obeying the law, although Joseph certainly does that, right? There's many examples through, throughout the, the first chapter of Matthew and parts of Luke, how Joseph fulfilled the law totally and completely. But ultimately, it's about Joseph, you know, falling down on his knees before the amazing mystery of the Incarnation, which he found out about probably because his spouse told him about it. Probably because Mary had a little conversation with him about it, you know? They happen to be married, you know? I, this is, a, <laughs> this is a, something we don't really appreciate in scriptures because we, we hear the, the word betrothed, right? And we presume, oh yeah, they must have been engaged, right? That's not at all like what happened. Joseph and Mary were, were actually married. The process of Jewish marriage was that, first of all, there would be this uh, betrothal. So we use the word betrothal, right? Because they're not living together yet. But they're betrothed together. They're legally married. They're just not living yet together. And then they come and they live together later, right? So they were actually married by all the laws that, uh, that of the Jewish people. They were actually married. 
So we're not talking about just an engaged couple and Joseph gets frustrated at them. We're talking about a couple that's already married, just not living yet together. So Mary is going to be open to Joseph. She's, she's a transparent vessel of the Lord, right? She's not going to kind of, uh, she's not going to obscure the mystery of salvation that's happening in her to the closest person that, that the Lord has put into her life. Did I, did I convince you? Any objectors? think that Joseph was just suspicious. Okay, if you do, we can talk about it. You know, I'm definitely, I, I think it's pretty clear myself. There's a lot more than, than what I'm sharing with you now, but I think it's pretty clear, and I think it's something that we need to be realizing rather than letting other people talk about, oh yeah, Joseph, yeah, he, he was going to divorce her because he thought she was unfaithful, and it minimizes the, the role that Joseph has. It doesn't minimize it. It changes the role that Joseph has in the history of salvation. Okay, um, I, I'm going to kind of move on from mis misconceptions about Joseph from here, because I think we've, we've got um, some important, an important groundwork of who he is. Let's talk about uh, authentic devotion to St. Joseph. What does it mean to be devoted to St. Joseph? What does it look like in your spiritual life? Any ideas? How many, how many of you consider yourself devotees of St. Joseph, like you have a devotion to St. Joseph? Okay. What, what do you do to express that? Put you on the spot. <laughs> you raise your hand, you're like, ah, ah, I don't really know, Father. <laughs> I like the name. My middle name's Joseph, so, yeah. Um, the Joseph Terror of Demons. Joseph Terror of Demons, okay? Yeah, that's from, that's a, an invocation to St. Joseph from the end of the litany to St. Joseph. Joseph Terror of Demons. So, actually, it's funny, you know, the end of the litany, the last two... The last two uh, invocations of the litany are Joseph, terror of demons, pray for us. Joseph, protector of the church, pray for us. I remember uh, this incident in our community where somebody was praying. We pray the litany every day, daily. We pray the litany to St. Joseph right before our, um, our lunch time together. And um, one, of our, uh, one of our men was, uh, was reading the litany and he said, he mixed up those two and he said, terror of the church, patron of demons, right? <laughs> And everybody's just kind of on autopilot, pray for us, pray for us. <laughs> okay, you just said he's your patron, right? <laughs> Be careful, right? Be careful. Okay, Joseph, Terror of Demons. Anybody else want to describe how they feel a, a connection to Joseph? Like, like, work, like About manual labor and work, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a really kind of neat aspect of St. Joseph. You know, this, the devotion, how old is the feast of St. Joseph the Worker, May 1st? Yeah, it's from the 20th century, right? The feast of St. Joseph the Worker. I, that's not to say there wasn't a devotion to him prior to that. In fact, in 1889, when Leo XIII is writing a document on St. Joseph, he's describing how Joseph is the patron of workers, is the patron of artisans, right? But um, it's, it was a response, right? It was a response... To, to what? Of, to communism, right? That there is dignity in work, whereas communism looked at work as a commodity, right? This is something we can trade, something to, um, to extract from the people. But the church looks and says, wait a second, there's dignity. Jesus gave dignity to work, right? And he learned that from St. Joseph. So it's a relatively new kind of um, appreciation of St. Joseph, but certainly foundational, yeah. Anybody else? Yes, Scott. 
Being okay with being unnoticed. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm going to get into that right now in just a minute. That's good. I won't go into that real deeply right now. Yeah. For a happy death. St. Joseph, yeah. St. Joseph is the patron of a happy death. Um, I don't pray for that very much myself. You know? um, <laughs> I should, I guess. Right? I should. But I find myself praying for a happy life more than a happy death. Right? Um, okay, these are, these are good ideas. Let me, let me start off with the foundation of why you should start looking to St. Joseph, right? Why you should have a devotion to St. Joseph. The church says that all of the greatness of St. Joseph comes through his relationship to Mary. Mary. This was kind of, I remember talking about this last June. We were talking here uh, also about fatherhood, right? But that was a surprise to me. I mean, when I started studying, you know, St. Joseph and entering formation as an omelet of St. Joseph, and you start reading all of the greatness of St. Joseph. This is not me, by the way. This is the church, right? John Paul II reiterated this in his document, Redemptoris Custos, the largest document on St. Joseph that the church has, has published. But he said all of the greatness of St. Joseph can be found in his relationship to Mary, which was a surprise to me because I thought, well, shouldn't it be found in his relationship to Jesus? To Jesus. But what John Paul II says is that you can't even talk about a relationship between Joseph and Jesus until you talk about a relationship between Joseph and Mary. So in order to know Jesus, in order to be in relationship to Jesus, Joseph first had to have a relationship to our Blessed Mother. Okay, let me tell you something. If you want a relationship with Jesus, you have to also have a relationship with our Blessed Mother. Whether you know it or not, right? Whether you spurn her in your prayer life or not, she is wanting a relationship with you and she's interceding for us uh, before, before the throne of God, right? And it's so important for us to cultivate that relationship with our Blessed Mother. St. Joseph shows us what it means to be in relationship to our Blessed Mother. So St. Joseph shows us that we honor her, we respect her, we love her, we embrace her, we serve her. I mean, the whole life of St. Joseph is uh, orbiting the lives of Mary and Jesus. And this is just amazing. There is no other saint closer to, to Jesus after Mary than Joseph. That's why I said Joseph, the second greatest saint, right? That's why we we're publicizing it. It's not a put down to St. Joseph. You might have a shirt at home that says, you know, Second place is the first loser, right? It's a really common, you know, 10, 15 years ago. We're not saying St. Joseph is the first loser, right? We're saying that there could be no better place in heaven than to be next to the Blessed Mother, right? Than to be right next to, to uh, the mother of Jesus and then, of course, next to her son. So that is why every single one of us should have a devotion to St. Joseph because he shows us better than anybody else in scripture, better than anybody else in the history of the church, of how to be in intimate relationships, in, in an intimate relationship with Mary. Not one of, um, of sexual you know, expression, physical sexual expression, right? but one of total giving, total self-giving. I mean, it's, it's really mysterious how the model of marriage the model of parenthood is lived 
by two virginal people, right? This is a mystery, right? But if you're called to marriage, your models are Joseph and Mary. Two, two people that lived virginal lives, at least as far as we know. Uh, of course we know Mary, right? I'm talking about Joseph. So true devotion to St. Joseph means, first of all, that we are also devoted to Mary. Okay. The next thing I want to talk about is a topic very near and dear to my heart, which Scott alluded to, and I call it the hidden life of, of the Holy Family at Nazareth, the hidden life. Actually, I wrote my thesis, my MA thesis in, in the seminary on the hidden life of, of in the writings of St. Joseph Morello, the founder of my religious community, but it was mostly about St. Joseph and understanding what does that mean. For three years, Jesus preached his message publicly, right? But prior to that, for 30 years, he was in relative obscurity in Nazareth, preparing for that mission, being prepared by Joseph and Mary. If we say that that period of his life didn't matter, then we are denying the mystery of the Incarnation. Um, let me say that again, right? If we're saying that those 30 years of Jesus' life are insignificant, we are in many ways denying parts of the mystery of the Incarnation. Because as the Church teaches, the whole of the life of Jesus is part of our salvation. Not only His Passion, His Death, and His Resurrection, those are fundamental, of course, but the whole of the life of Jesus, including His birth at Bethlehem, including His uh, finding in the temple, right? Being lost and being found in the temple in Jerusalem when He was 12 years old, right? including all of his public preaching and all of the time in between that. Just because we don't know about the specifics of it don't mean it's not important. I, you know, I really wish I could have seen the young Messiah before coming here. I'm sure I'm going to hate it when I see it, I'm sure. I, I don't know. Maybe, has anybody seen it? Oh, no. Oh, okay. So if I talk bad about it, you won't. Yeah. To me, no, I, I'm not going to talk bad about it. I haven't even seen it, right? But to me, it's... it's um, in many ways, it's, it's undermining the beauty of the hiddenness of those 30 years of Jesus, right? And I think it's pulling a lot from the Proto-Evangelium of James, okay? So before you see that movie, if you're planning to see it, you should read, first of all, the Proto-Evangelium of James, because I'm sure you're going to see these things in there, right? Joseph, Jesus is going to make two little clay pigeons, or two little pigeons out of clay. He's going to grab clay, he's going to form them into birds, breathe life into them, they're going to fly away, and it's going to look so sweet and special. It's a legend, right? It's a legend created back in the first centuries of the church that has no basis in history, and unfortunately to me, really take away from the mystery of, of Jesus' life. People didn't know he was amazing. Do you remember when he was out preaching? And people are like, who is this? We know this guy's dad. We know this guy's mom. We know his brother. He couldn't, this guy couldn't give us something. How is it that he's preaching? And they took offense at him. If he was there doing like little amazing, little kid-like miracles, I think people would notice. The fact is that those 30 years are also part of our salvation. And Jesus was intimately involved in the life of Jesus. Joseph was intimately involved in the life of Jesus during that period. It was the Father's responsibility to teach His Son how to pray. So when Jesus is on the cross, praying the psalm, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who did He learn that from? He learned that from St. Joseph. 
He learned that from his earthly father. So, I think this, um, this idea is so important, especially for our times. We live in a world where we want to post everything on Instagram, everything on Snapchat. We want to post what we ate here at, you know, Monk's Cellar. We want to post what, you know, the, every little bit of our life, we want to publicize it. We want to make every little bit known. I think there's this um, real danger that we have where we're not appreciating the value of hiddenness. The value that God knows what's going on in, in my life. I don't need to receive recognition or commentary from other people, right? Or acknowledgement that I'm doing something amazing that, can you believe I just finished my CrossFit routine and look at, right? I mean, <laughs> shoot, I shouldn't be looking out there, you know, I saw, saw people like in shame, their hips dropping. <laughs> I, I'm just saying it's that temptation we live in to publicize every single bit of our lives. And it's unfortunate. To me, it's, it goes against Jesus' model, right? Jesus' own model, which was only 10% of his life was public. And even that 10%, only a very small portion of it is recorded. So we have to be careful, you know, about, about that temptation to, to really publicize everything we do. And to me, that's really part of this foundation of devotion to St. Joseph. It's hard, yes, but it gets to the root of what we are as people. Our dignity doesn't come because we're amazing preachers. Our dignity doesn't come because people are acknowledging how good I am. My dignity doesn't come from the talents that I even share with the world, although that's an important contribution that, that we make. Our dignity comes when we are in intimate relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that dignity uh, is especially fostered and, uh, and kind of helps us to be, uh, helps us, uh, helps make us aware of that dignity when we're in relationship to Mary and Joseph. So, to me, really authentic devotion to St. Joseph also realizes this, that it's okay that some parts of my life are obscure. It's okay that some parts of my life are secret between me and God. Maybe between me, God, and my confessor, my spiritual director, if I need help like that. Right? But in many ways, it's about realizing I don't need the approval of a bunch of people to do the will of God. Um, I guess I would say there's tons. <laughs> this always happens to me when I come right. I have this like whole, it's longer than the litany of St. Joseph here of like, yeah, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Let me just focus on one more really important thing about authentic uh, devotion to St. Joseph. What did Joseph do when the angel appeared to him and said, you know what, this is, you're in a dangerous situation. Herod is trying to kill the Savior, all of these babies he's going to murder. you got to get your family out of here. What did he do? He woke up and he left. He did it. He did it like that. There's nothing like, oh, i got to think about this. i got to plan for this. i got to... He just did it. He obeyed the will of God. The same thing later, right, when the angel appeared to him and said, okay, it's time to go back. He got up and he did it. The whole, the whole purpose of Joseph's life um, was to be in complete obedience to God's will. There is nobody more faithful to God's will, right, after our Blessed Mother than St. Joseph. Because in everything he did, says the church, everything he did was in obedience to his heavenly father. 
And this is where we learn something so important, I think, in our own times. We, we are very disobedient people, right? Through all times and all ages, ever since Adam and Eve, you know, chose, chose badly for, that affected all of us. We, are, we suffer with this disobedient spirit. We want to do it our way. We want to do things, uh, you know, the way that I think it's going to make me happy. The way that I think I'm going to accomplish my goals. The way that I think I'm going to feel fulfilled. Joseph didn't do that. Joseph stuck with God's plan the whole time. And that's why he's as great as he is. Because of obedience. Because of obedience. Because of his fidelity to finding greatness in the ordinary, simple, hidden things of life. And in his relationship to our Blessed Mother. Okay. I'm going to stop talking and open it up for discussion for a little bit because I think um, there's a lot of things we could talk about, right? I don't want to kind of lead the discussion too much. But for example, if we wanted to talk about scripture, we could talk about Joseph's connection to Joseph of Egypt in Genesis, right? Which is a huge, uh, a huge topic that you can see God preparing all of the world for the coming of Joseph in the person of Joseph of Egypt. Anyway, there's all of these things. So if you have questions about St. Joseph or observations about your devotional life, then please let me know right now. And then uh, before I finish up, after the Q&A, kind of, I want to share some tips that I think we could do to improve our, our practical devotion to St. Joseph. Okay. okay, open floor. Yes. So what is the connection? So what is, yeah, I know, I was afraid of that, yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't have mentioned that, yeah. Um, um, okay, very, very simply, we could say this, right? I'll just, I'll just say what Leo XIII said. Joseph, St. Joseph was proclaimed, uh, I'm sorry, Pius IX said, right? Pius IX proclaimed St. Joseph as patron of the universal church, patron of the whole Catholic church, St. Joseph. Why did he do that? Does anybody know? Before I just give you the answer. Anybody? Okay. Pius IX said this. In the Old Testament, Joseph, who became... Do you guys know the story of Joseph, right? He was abandoned in the desert by his brothers to be murdered. He was captured. Instead, was sold into slavery to the Egyptians. Rose up. You know, he was a very intelligent guy. Was able to interpret dreams. Ended up in the presence of the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh realized this guy knows his stuff made him the administrator, the steward of the entire you know, kingdom or reign of the nation of Egypt. So Joseph was in charge of all of Egypt, right? As the, the steward, he had the same power as Pharaoh. Okay, so this is all described in the book of Genesis. What Pius IX says is, Pius IX says, just as Pharaoh entrusted all of his possessions to Joseph, God the Father entrusted all, everything he had to Joseph, St. Joseph of Nazareth. So, God the Father entrusted Jesus, the Blessed Mother, to the care of Joseph. So, just as all of the, the kingdom of Egypt was given to Joseph, so all of creation is given to St. Joseph. And that's the, that's the theological reason that Pius IX made St. Joseph the patron of the universal church. Right? The patron of, uh, he didn't say all creation, right? But the patron of all people. It's because just as, you know, just as Pharaoh had entrusted all this, so God entrusted all of his possessions in quotation marks. Is there a, a tertiary connection to Arimathea who carries the whole body of Jesus? To Joseph of Arimathea, is there a connection? 
I don't think there's a connection. I mean, I've read really, like, people really stretching it, you know, to try and say it. But Joseph is not an uncommon name, right, in first century Palestine there, so, uh, or the, the, the Holy Land there. So I wouldn't say that that was really um, the, the purpose there. Um, but I, I have read people that try and kind of connect that, you know, so, oh, yeah, Joseph was there in name to take the body of his son and bury it, you know, all that, you know, I, I think it's a stretch for myself here. Does that basically sum up? Yeah. There, there's, there are a lot more parallels you could go into. It's really beautiful, kind of reading Joseph in the book of Genesis and seeing the parallels with St. Joseph in the New Testament. It's, it's really neat. Yes, John. Uh, everything you said about Joseph, or most of it, it would seem could be said about the beloved disciple. So um, the only difference is, right, um, St. John was asked by God himself to take Mary into his home. So, I mean, not to play devil's advocate, I mean, it's a great question, right? But is there, a, a, you know, this penultimate sanctity, does it belong to the beloved disciple or to St. Joseph? Okay, good question. So, first of all, um, when the angel appeared to Mary, who was asking her to, to be the mother of God? Was it the angel? It was God, right? The angel was a messenger. I mean, literally, that's what angel means, right? It's a messenger. It was God asking, asking Mary to be, um, to be the mother uh, of, of his son, right? So, also... When the angel appears to Joseph, right, and says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, right, it is the will of God manifested in the messenger that Joseph then uh, also be married to the Blessed Mother. So, so I would say it's very clear that it was God's will that Joseph be married. So to say that, oh, well, Jesus told St. John that they should be together, right, but God didn't tell Joseph that, I think is not correct, right? So, okay, so let's just kind of dispel that first of all, right? That actually God did ask both of them to, to care for, for, for the Blessed Mother. That I think the difference is this, right? Jo Joseph was entrusted with raising Jesus. I mean, Joseph was entrusted, Jesus didn't come into the world, right, knowing all of all of the scripture. He didn't come in, he, in his human, John's smiling because he's about ready to get Dominican on me, right? Uh, <laughs> Jesus didn't come into the world. He, he had to learn, right? His human nature had to assimilate and be formed in all of these different things. And it was Joseph's responsibility to do that. In many ways, that's, um, I shouldn't say in many ways, that's a responsibility that St. John didn't have, right? So St. John, yes, he did have a, he did have a, see, see, no, no, wait, 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 let me finish. <laughs> he just, I know this guy loves like the community of St. John and everything. I'm just, I got the mic and I, he does it. <laughs> I would just say this, whenever, um, I, we could talk about, you know, scripture and theology, but it's, it's very clear from the churches, their hierarchy of saints, right? St. John is not, is not up there with Joseph. So. No, just kidding. <laughs> about to drop the mic. <laughs>
Yeah, I, I, would do, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, the observation is that the difference in the relationships is that Joseph is, I would say Joseph is the husband, right? Because we're talking about in relationship to Mary. So Joseph is the husband. St. John is the new son, right? The new son of Mary. He's not the new husband. And in many ways, those are different, very different relationships. Yes? Um, so, on his wife, Mary, Mary Magdalene, she's saying that Jesus always having to be attentive to between the learned and... No, I can't expound on that. <laughs> no. No, the question was... How do <laughs> How do, we, how do we understand Jesus always being in the beatific vision, but all at the same time having to learn? I mean, you take, you take semesters of theology, you know, trying to, trying to put together, you know, his divinity and his humanity. Um, I would just say, it's not, like, it's not like in his head he was walking around seeing angels, right? But it, through his eyes he was seeing the mundane things of the world. That's not how we understand Jesus to be. We understand him to be fully human and fully God, right? And so when he comes as a, as a human being, his divinity is, is somehow um, masked by his humility, right? If you look at iconography, you know, in the East, what colors is Jesus vested in? Jesus is, is always vested in red, covered in blue, right? Right? How is our Blessed Mother vested? Blue, covered in red. Why? Because red is symbolic of divinity, and blue is symbolic of humanity. So Jesus is divine, and he somehow embraces humanity, right? He's covered. I don't want to say covered, because he, he actually united the two, right? But I'm, this, we have to use human language, right? So he's clothed in humanity, whereas our Blessed Mother is human, but clothed in divinity, right? That's about as far as I'm going to go theologically. It's a, it's a good, it's a, it's a really good, important thing, but it's a, probably a different topic, yeah. Yes. So, two questions. One, did St. Joseph have a wife that spoke for Jesus? And two, uh, how did he come to his earthly end? Like, we don't really hear much about it once Jesus starts up at 30 years old. Yeah. Okay, so the two questions. Did, did Jesus have a bar mitzvah? And two, did, um, did, uh, how did St. Joseph uh, die, or, or how did he kind of leave this world and go into the next? Uh, I would say, I think, you know, I'm not an expert on Judaism, if somebody here is, I think the bar mitzvah is a relatively recent development, uh, coming of age kind of celebration. It's not, definitely not scriptural anyway. So I don't know the origins of the bar mitzvah. Certainly scripture doesn't, doesn't talk about it, and I would presume that it's a, it's a, it's a, more of a modern-day uh, Jewish uh, tradition, right? Uh, he did circumcise Jesus, you know, um, so there is that, um, but it's different from a bar mitzvah, I guess, right? Um, um, okay, how did Joseph die? When did Joseph die? I mean, Scripture doesn't say. We know that he was alive when Jesus was 12 years old, right? Because they, they went to Jerusalem together, and Joseph is at least alive when Jesus is 12. But by the time Jesus is about 30 years old, Joseph is not on the scene any, anymore. There, there's a very, um, probably very important reason why Joseph is not on the scene anymore at that point. Because as soon as, like, right out of the gate, you know, Jesus is talking about, my father, my father, my father. 
And who's he talking about? He's talking about his heavenly father. Even though Joseph was known as his father, if you read in Luke, right, when they went to the temple, you can, you can read about how Mary said, your father and I were worried about you, right? Even Mary referred to Joseph. Mary, of all people, knows that Joseph is not the biological father. But even she is talking about the fatherhood of Joseph. Because by all accounts of, of Jewish law, Joseph was the legal father of Jesus. The only way he wasn't father was biologically, right? But we know that that really doesn't make a father anyway, you know, biology. Um, so, uh, I should say, necessarily it doesn't, right? Um, to be a good father is a lot more than just sharing your DNA. Um, so, Joseph really has to be off the scene by the time, has to be out of the picture by the time Jesus is doing his public ministry. For the simple fact that it's not going to make sense unless Joseph is, is already with his heavenly reward, you know, or at least soon to be, and, uh, and Jesus can preach then about his, his, his father in heaven, okay? Um, so that's kind of why I think, you know, God allowed Joseph to pass before Jesus goes, goes with his public ministry. I remember um, another priest, was this? Maybe this was just uh, this week. We're doing this novena to St. Joseph and different uh, priests are sharing... Um, different uh, people in our community were sharing different reflections each day on the person of St. Joseph, just our personal experiences and stuff. I remember, I can't remember now if this was during the novena or another oblate was sharing this with me recently, but he was saying, you know, he, in his, in his uh, appreciation, he's starting to realize that he doesn't think St. Joseph would have been able to take it, would have been able to sit. Uh, was that Father Phil? Okay, Father Phil. Uh, we, he didn't think that Jesus would have, or Joseph would have been able to stand at the foot of the cross and just let Jesus die. You know? That Joseph would have been like, I'm getting up there, I'm getting him down, you can put me on that cross, but this is never happening, you know. It's a, it's, of course, it's a pious reflection, it's not necessarily true, but it, it really got me thinking about that role that Joseph really, um, really took seriously to, to be that father figure for Jesus. Okay. So we don't know exactly when he died. The tradition is that he died in the arms of Jesus and Mary, probably when Jesus was already more or less an adult. Yes. So if he died and was presumably in heaven, when Jesus was preaching about his heavenly about his father in heaven, would some people misunderstand that context of him being referring to well, that, that's, I mean, that's, I guess what I'm inferring is that, that there's never confusion in scriptures about that, right? Nobody ever says, oh, wait, is he talking about Joseph or is he, even though they know about Joseph, right? So when Jesus is talking about his heavenly father, nobody's misunderstanding him and saying, oh, you mean the, you know, the carpenter back in Nazareth? And nobody's saying that. They all know who he's talking about. Yes. That's what, yeah, that's why I said, well, almost, you know, because it wasn't until, but once you pass in this world, what happens with time? I don't know. So where was, where was Joseph, Joseph, what all the other good people? In limbo, with all the little um, babies, you know, that died before baptism. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're supposed to, uh, people, we don't believe in limbo, Father. Um, no, we, um, you know, the realm of the dead, right? I mean, we, we don't, we don't really know theologically. I mean, where, where did Jesus go? After his, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, Hebrew words we could use to, to describe. Basically, that state where our justice had not been yet achieved yet by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. 
but people were not condemned to, you know, a life of, you know, eternal punishment. So what does that look like? I don't know. This is where the patriarchs were, right? Uh, this is where Moses and Abraham and even Noah, where, where everybody was, where they were, I mean, not Noah, even uh, Adam, or everybody waiting to be saved, waiting to be released into the, to the gates of heaven. So, but it's kind of outside of time. I mean, I, I, I don't know. If somebody wants to get up here and speculate, come on up. What about the transfiguration Yeah. So let's, let's keep talking about St. Joseph. If, <laughs> We could talk about it. We could go, yeah. It's a good question. I mean, the transfiguration is a really important part of Lent, right? I mean, we talk about the transfiguration at the beginning of every Lent, but transfiguration is more about preparing the disciples to appreciate what the Jesus is not, this is not the end of Jesus, his crucifixion. So, uh, anyway. Sorry, that's totally unsatisfactory, I know, but... <laughs> yes. Some of the promises associated with the devotion to St. Joseph. Well, I guess um, I'm not familiar with specific promises that the church has said, if you do this, then you are guaranteed that. You know, it's not like uh, promises of the scapular, for example, right? Where the church has, has basically officially said, this is, this is what you gain by devotion to St. Joseph. I would say this, there are very particular devotions that the church has encouraged. You know, Leo Thirteenth. He mandated that everybody during the month of October add a particular prayer to St. Joseph after the rosary. And he said, also, it would be praiseworthy to do that after every rosary you do. How many people know that prayer? My goodness. You guys are bad Catholics. <laughs> that, that rule was never abrogated, right? I mean, that he mandated this, right? Back in the 19th century, I'm teasing you, right? Of course, very few people know this. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. Um, it's, it's considerable. It's long, but it's basically talking about St. Joseph. We've just implored the help of your heavenly spouse, and now we turn to you, right? Help us in our need, right? Help us against the temptations and the difficulties of, of this world. I mean, I would really recommend to you, if you look for the prayer to St. Joseph after the rosary, you'll find it. Add it to your rosary. I mean, to me, this is where you start to integrate um, the life of Joseph into your into your own devotional life. Okay, to appreciate that's how that's how my own devotion to Saint Joseph started by very simple things. Okay, first of all was that. Sorry, I'm getting a little off the promises topic because I don't have a lot to say about that. Right, but um, but I would say the promise I can promise you that you'll love Mary better. Right. <laughs> um, but if we f start by adding that prayer after your rosary, if you're not praying the rosary, then you got to start with the rosary, right? Start praying the Saint Joseph, the prayer to Saint Joseph after the rosary, um, and then uh, start praying the seven sorrows and joys of Saint Joseph. If you remember, if you were here last June, I shared that with you. Uh, to me, it's it's awesome. It's seven scriptural accounts from the life of Joseph, and how on the one hand they were very troubling to Joseph, how he experienced great sorrow. And on the other hand, uh, how it turned into great joy for him. And to me, it's one of my favorite prayers. Uh, it's just, to me, it's a summary of the Christian life, of having Jesus and Mary close to us, and yet continuing to go through sorrows, continuing to experience joys. And it's really, uh, we do it every, every Wednesday in community, because Wednesday is traditionally devoted to 
to St. Joseph. Um, I would just really recommend you if, you, if you're not familiar with that, that will give you a, a really solid theological foundation and beautiful reflections for your own meditation and, and incorporating the life of St. Joseph uh, into your devotional life. Yes? It's like the fatherhood of St. Joseph more similar to the fatherhood of priest experiences or fatherhood like a husband experiences, or is it kind of like transcend both? Yeah, uh, so the, the question is, do, is the fatherhood of St. Joseph more similar to um, married life, right? Or is it more similar to priestly life? Um, I think it does transcend both. I mean, I think that's a good way to put it. Like, what, what Leo Thirteenth talks about when he talks about St. Joseph is he says, St. Joseph is a patron of all people. No matter your walk for life, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you have a very uh, hard-working, laboring job, or you're in some administrative you know, capacity, St. Joseph is the perfect patron for you. Because he encompasses this whole um, paradoxical life, right, of being married, yet being a virgin, right? of being uh, a father, and yet not having conceived the, the child himself, you know, of being all of these different kind of paradoxes Joseph brings together and is able to integrate them all into, the, into his life. Where, so Leo XIII says that he's the perfect saint for people of all walks of life. So I would say, um, certainly I can, as a priest, I can see the parallels between my priesthood and the priesthood of St. Joseph. I'm, I'm sorry, the fatherhood of St. Joseph. But practically, I would say, just because he was a father of a family, I would say probably that's going to have more parallels than maybe with my priestly ministry. Okay, yeah. Uh, you just brought up one of the ideas that uh, St. Joseph was an older gentleman who had been married before, maybe had children before. Um, that's been kind of like the urban legend that I've always heard. Yeah. And so, uh, what, where would you find uh, evidence to the contrary? Okay. So, the, the question is, um, we talked about the age of St. Joseph and how it's kind of like how we, most of us grew up, that Joseph is this old white, <laughs> I looked at this image kind of expecting it to be an image of the saints. Maybe St. Joseph's in there. <laughs> oh, that's right, we're in a pub, I forgot. <laughs> um, so St. Joseph is so often depicted in art as an old man for, for two reasons, right? The main reason is because of the Proto-Evangelium of James. Honestly, the main reason is because as soon as you start depicting him as an old man after that, those apocryphal writings, then everybody else follows suit, right? People start to say, yeah, that must be how he looked. Everybody else is painting him that way. Everybody else is representing him that way. So just kind of everybody following the same idea. The other, the other kind of more theological thing, you know, sometimes why is God the Father depicted as an old man? Because it's symbolic of, of wisdom and maturity, right? And, and knowledge. Because the older we get, the smarter we are, the wiser we are anyway, right? So the same thing is, is sometimes said of St. Joseph as he's represented in art. He's represented as an old man, not necessarily because he was that way physically, but because it's representative, it's symbolic of his... Um, his wisdom, right? I would say, um, to me, just look at scripture and say, well, 
how would an old man take Mary and Jesus and travel, you know, from Bethlehem, I'm sorry, from uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem, from over to Egypt, back to Nazareth? I mean, that, that alone right there, you're going to need somebody who's strong and fit, right? Um, not necessarily, but to me, it's um, partly the indication there is, well, practically, um, you know, you, these are things that are pretty arduous kind of trips. The other thing I would say is just, if you, if you talk about it, if you presume, right, if I ask you, oh, oh, you're engaged, are they 90 years old? Right? Of course, <laughs> you don't presume that, right? You don't, you don't presume, you presume that they're going to follow the customs of the time. The customs of the time were not that they would be married off to some impotent old man. I mean, sorry to put it bluntly, right? But that's, that's kind of what, what the Proto-Evangelium of James says about it. That is not at all the, the idea, you know, that, that the Jewish culture would have had at the time, is that these are young people, you know, marry them off as young people. So we believe, you know, more or less that Mary was 14, 15 years old, something like that. Joseph was probably older, but probably not much older. So I draw that not because scripture says that, right? But just from the historical context that it would have been a, a very rare exception that Mary would have been married off to this really old man. So I think if you just use reason, we're going to err on the side of first Joseph. I would say, you know, what's the, what's the indication that he was old? Right? I mean, if you think, if, like, let's put the burden of proof back on the people that say he's an old man. Well, the only, the, do you have, do you have a reason? Yeah, I, I just, my... Because every piece uh, of art you ever saw hasn't no, been. No, no, no. <laughs> just the Protestant people would say, well, because he had brothers and sisters... Yeah. Well, the Protestant people would also say Mary didn't remain a virgin afterwards, so I don't realize why that makes a difference, right? So, but, but yeah, we could talk about that discussion, right? I mean, that's just a, that's a grammatical thing, you know? I mean, we, we know that that word, right, encompasses more than just immediate siblings, right? That word encompasses uh, cousins, it encompasses, you know, a whole tribe, uh, children of a tribe. So that kind of, that, that part is not a reason why Joseph would... You know, also, Joseph could have been 19, his wife died, he had a child from his wife, you know, a year later, his wife dies, and then he marries Mary. He's a young man still, and he has other children, right? So there's no, there's no necessary logic that says, well, if he had children, he must have been an old man. Right? Doesn't the liturgy uh, treat him as a virgin? Yeah, the liturgy treats him, the church has seen Joseph as a virgin, right? Uh, the the lit liturgy talks about this, right? And popular... Uh, saints who have written about him, including back to St. Augustine. I mean, we, we look at person of St. Joseph and sometimes think, oh, this is a relatively new devotion. St. Saint, Saint Augustine wrote a ton on the importance of the person of Joseph and his role as husband and his role as virginal father of Jesus. So yeah, there's a lot, a lot in our, our history of a church, as a church of Joseph being a virgin as well. Okay, um, I wanted to um, finish up with some ideas, okay? I got two minutes, then I gotta leave. I'm sorry, because we have our devotion to Saint, or our novena to Saint Joseph at nine, so that's more important to me than you guys. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just want to share with you a couple, couple ideas. I already mentioned some of them, right? Add the, the prayer to Saint Joseph after your rosary. It's a beautiful prayer. I, I think you'll love it. 
takes a little while to learn because it's a little, little lengthier than the Salve Regina, for example, but it's, it's a beautiful prayer. Look at the seven sorrows and joys of St. Joseph. Okay? That's, I think, also an amazing way that you can increase your, your understanding and your love for St. Joseph. Look to St. Joseph and realize here is a strong, hidden man that shows you exactly what it means to be Christian, to be in relationship to Jesus. I mean, this is uh, something it took me years to appreciate that Joseph, more than, more than somebody that I look to as, wow, I want to look at, look at this guy, you know, the way I kind of might do with Mary, is I look to Joseph as like walking along with me. Like, man, if he's doing this, I can walk next to him. He can help me out. He can protect me. He can uh, guide me to Mary and Joseph. Um, the last thing I would just describe is um, this very special devotion to the Holy Spouses. Um, the Holy Spouses as, as a couple, Mary and Joseph. Do you know, in the liturgy, prior to the change of the liturgical calendar at the Second Vatican Council, there was a, a feast called the Betrothal, right? The Betrothal of Mary and Joseph, celebrated on January 23rd. Um, that, that feast, that celebration, it was an, a memorial. It was abrogated. Uh, the Oblates of St. Joseph in the 80s asked special permission to reintegrate it into our popular calendar, into our, our proper calendar, and we got permission from the Vatican to do it. So every January 23rd that comes along, we have a special Mass in honor of Jer Joseph and Mary as husband and wife. Um, to me, it's amazing that it falls, very providential, it falls after the infamous anniversary of Roe v. Wade, right? Uh, Roe v. Wade is January 22nd. And as oblates, we're celebrating on the 23rd, the, the authentic married life. I would just encourage you, if all of Joseph's greatness comes from his relationship to Mary, then um, we need to reflect on their marriage, right? We need to reflect on what it meant for them to be husband and wife. And how Mary also, it's not like Mary was just this um, angel floating on the earth, right? Like this mystical creature we can't understand. She was a woman, um, perfect, of course but also a spouse, right? This is, a, this is crazy, a mystery, right? Amazing mystery for us. Okay, I'm, I'm really sorry, I didn't realize how long I've been talking, so I'm gonna give you a blessing, and then I'm gonna get out of here, and I'm gonna pray for all of you at our novena tonight, okay? Okay, let us pray. Heavenly Father, you give to us a person of Saint Joseph to help us to understand what authentic manhood looks like, what authentic personhood looks like, what authentic uh, childhood of yours looks like. We ask you that we might always look to the person of St. Joseph and his relationship to Mary and Jesus as a, as a pattern, as a model for our own life, that we might live humbly, simply, obediently, hiddenly, always seeking your will here on earth and trusting you at every moment of our lives. May Almighty God bless you all, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you, Father. So hopefully before Father leaves, um, we're going to pass the pitcher, and it's our custom. If somebody has a vow of poverty, we are especially generous. So throw the Benjamins in the pitcher, or the Jacksons. And uh, are there any other... Announcements. Vincent, I know you had one. You want to come on up?
here just to announce the Amanda Vernon concert that's going to be at Divine Mercy Church on April 24th at 7 p.m. Amanda Vernon is a really good singer and we're having the concert to raise money for our World Youth Day delegation going um, this year. And so uh, we will have pre-sale tickets on sale uh, coming up at our Sunday Masses or if you just come same day on April 24th. It's a Sunday at 7 p.m. at Divine Mercy in the Thomas. Thank you. Thank you. To the hikes, uh, there's a hike on Saturday, Point Reyes, Stenson Beach, sorry, and that's on the website? Yes. Yes. Yeah. We practiced. Okay, patience. Excellent. And uh, Thursday, St. John the Baptist in Folsom. Really uh, great group that's been meeting every other week. It's the, it's the Theology of the Body group. Where we're comparing all the topics that John Paul II brings up in Theology of the Body with the Church Fathers, Augustine Aquinas. And we're seeing how it lines up. It's very beautiful. Great discussion. Um, we've been talking lately about contraception. What... The, the first sin, the original sin, is a contraceptive act. So not necessarily sexual, but contraceptive in nature. It's a great question. Uh, a beautiful group, great people. That's 7.30 Thursday in Folsom. And it's St. Patrick's Day, so maybe we can have... Green beer. Okay, uh, so that picture is going around. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for being here. Um, lastly, uh, to Father Matthew, thank you for teaching us about St. Joseph in word and deed. So uh, please give Father Matthew one big round of applause. And to the, to the seminarians for being here. Thank you also. Okay, uh, see you guys next, next month right here. Have a, have a great night. Thanks for coming.